according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 20. I think we wrapped up verse 9 last week. We're ready for verses 10 and following. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again to bless our time, to open our eyes, to feed us and, and, and bless us abundantly through your truth, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, yeah, last week we were looking at a cleansed heart and to be pure. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Well, if left to our own devices, none of us can say that because uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. But when we realize by the grace of God that we are made righteous, that we are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that He is the one who cleanses us, He is the one who purifies us, well, then we all can raise our hand and say, that's me. By the grace of God, that's me. And by the grace of God, I have eternal life and I will be with him forever. And so we looked at uh, those principles. In fact, it's a, it's a marvelous testimony to the doctrine of total depravity in Adam, that it is a universal state that no one left to themselves can say that uh, they are clean or pure. And uh, we looked at the verses that go with this. And it's, it's not hard to prove. You can demonstrate the, the lost estate of Adam quite easily. And then also then follow that up with the hope that we have in Christ and show the provision that's made as it is the grace of God that saves us and cleanses us from sin. And some of my favorite passages are there, including Psalm 24, Psalm 51. That's the great confession psalm of David's um, after Nathan exposed his sin. John 13, 1 Corinthians 6. That, for, that's, that one's also huge because I think people abuse that passage and uh, fail to see that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and the, the positional truth cleansing that we have in Christ. Let me just share that one one more time, and then we'll, we'll move on and gain new material here this morning. Because this gets, uh, people get confused with this, and even good people. Um, I heard a great pastor down in Houston, and he just taught this in a way that bothered me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so that is a position, that is an estate. We have the unrighteous and we have the righteous, the, the saved and the lost, the believers and the unbelievers. And it's not that they are unrighteous uh, because of the things they've done, it's because they're unrighteous because they're born in Adam and in Adam all die. And it says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what I think people get confused by, even good men, they, they, they get sidetracked by this list. And this list of things, whether it's five, six, ten, whatever it is, this list of things um, grabs the attention and, uh, and folks fix on it. And, and the really, I think Paul is using such a list, and, and a rather long one at that, to demonstrate that it doesn't matter what kind of sin you do, what, what your favorite flavor of sin is, or your sin nature, what you're fond of. Um, that we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, and it really doesn't matter what kind of sinner you are. If you're unrighteous, you're unrighteous. And then what you need is salvation. 
The answer, of course, comes in verse 11, and such were some of you, and notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you quit fornicating, you quit stealing, you quit being a homosexual, you quit whatever the sins are. It doesn't say that you stopped doing those sins, or you became a better person, or you changed your ways. It says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So we can celebrate the positional truth reality that when you are in Christ, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you have every right to be there because you have His righteousness. It's been imputed to your account. And that is your new nature in Christ. Now can you still commit these sins that are listed here? You can still fornicate, you can still uh, commit adultery, you can still steal, you can still get drunk, believers get drunk. But here's the thing, even though you keep doing these sins, judicially you're no longer a fornicator, you're no longer a drunkard, you're no longer a thief. In the eyes of the courtroom of God, in the judicial uh, throne of grace there, we are washed, sanctified, justified. So we are saints. And uh, the, the positional truth reality on this is beautiful. And the eternal security associated with this is beautiful. And so none of these accusations, who will bring a charge against the Lord's elect? Nobody. What a, uh, what a blessing that we have. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's what we were looking at a week ago. Today I want to move on to uh, verses 10 and following. And as we do so, we actually are going to hit a bit of a manuscript puzzle. Um, We've had others leading up to this one. Maybe this one is more severe than others. I'm not sure why. I haven't really highlighted this. We, We have encountered it in previous chapters. But just so you know, after verse 9, chapter 20 has numerous manuscript and textual issues. And uh, so there's little puzzles here and there, like how do we handle this verse, and what's this verse really saying, and, and uh, do we handle it this way? The Septuagint, by the way, departs from the Hebrew text. So whenever you see LXX, that's the abbreviation for Septuagint. That's the Roman numeral 70, and the Septuagint was, was named such because there were 70 uh, Jewish tr- uh, translators that took the Hebrew Old Testament and put it into Greek. And so the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And here the Septuagint goes kind of in a different direction. It it skips some verses, it reorders other verses, and it's actually six verses shorter than the Hebrew uh, text of of Hebrews chapter 20, uh, not Hebrews, Proverbs chapter 20. So the Septuagint departs from the Masoretic text. MT stands for Masoretic text. That's the the Hebrew Bible we have to this day. Our Hebrew Bibles today are descended from the Masoretic text tradition. So when you see LXX, that's Greek. When you see MT, that's Hebrew. So the Greek uh, departs from the Hebrew in the ordering of many verses, and the Hebrew has various interpretive puzzles. And um, so we're going to see this. Now notice, there were previous... um, chapters that had similar issues, and I don't think I mentioned them on any particular Wednesday morning or anything, but here's what happens. So when we get to verse 10 and following, um, the, uh, the Septuagint goes a different direction. It follows verse 9 with what we have as verses 20, 21, and 22. Oh, by the way, your English Bibles that you have, whether I don't care what you're reading this morning, if it's New American Standard or New King James or Old King James or, or 
pretty much anything that you're going to have in the English language that was published in our lifetime is, is following the Masoretic text. So uh, what we have here, we've got, a, uh, we've got 30 verses in chapter 20, and when we have uh, verse 10, it's differing weights and differing measures. That's following the Hebrew. That's following the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, but in the Septuagint, it actually goes from verse 9 to verse 20. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. And so in the, in the Septuagint, it follows verse 9 with verses um, 20 through 22. It then jumps back and grabs verses 10 through 13. And then it jumps forward and it totally skips over verses 14 through 19 because then the Septuagint goes verses 23 through 30 and just drops it there. And so in the Septuagint translation, when you have verses 10 through 24, they're going to be a bit off. Masoretic text, interestingly enough, um, is what we're following in verses 10 through 30. The only thing we have to be aware of is that it's in a scrambled order from the Septuagint and verses 14 through 19 are completely missing in the, uh, in the Greek. So uh, practically speaking, you say, why do I care? Well, <laughs> you probably don't. Um, but let me just show you. If you have the uh, Logos Bible software, how neat this is. So here I'll, I'll just start with verse 9 to show you the, the parallel. And um, let's also turn on my locator bar. There we go. All right. So there's verse 9. And it's got uh, the numerical standard on the left, it's got the Masoretic text, the Hebrew in the middle, and it's got the Septuagint on the right. And it's verse 9 in all three places. When I go to verse 10, I've got verse 10 in the English, I have verse 10 in the Hebrew, I have verse 13 in the Septuagint. Can you see that 13 up there? And it's kind of neat that, the, the, see, the software is smarter than we are. The software knows <laughs> that if you're going to read the English, you're going to read the Hebrew, you're going to read the Greek, you don't need to be reading the Greek of verse 10, you need to be reading the Greek of verse 13. Because that's the one that's, that's identified with, with this verse. And then um, verse 11 is verse 14, verse 12 is verse 15, you get to verse 13, and it's verse 16 in the, in the Greek you get to verse 14, the Greek disappeared. How cool is that? Because, again, the Bible software is smarter than we are. It knows that the Septuagint left out verses 14 through 19. And so we can just keep going. There's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And sure enough, when we get to verse 20, in the English it's verse 20, in the Hebrew it's verse 20, in the Greek it's verse 10. Because this is where it dropped back and picked up verses 10, 11, and 12. Anyway, so we have some fun stuff. This is uh, a, a side effect, a benefit of using Logos Bible software, especially if you're going to be doing the comparative studies with um, the Hebrew and the Septuagint Greek. All right. Previous chapters did have similar issues. I don't know that, I don't think I stressed them at all or even mentioned them maybe. Um, I, maybe a couple times I mentioned, you know, here's a verse that's not in the Septuagint, don't know why the Septuagint left it out. 
um, different things there. Maybe by the time the series is over, I'll, I'll just print a page that has all the chapter differences if, if anyone is concerned or cares for that kind of thing. Um, but this is what you've got to do. Proverbs has a lot of this. Psalms has even more. In Psalms, it could be one-off. You could be reading Psalm 119, but in the Greek, it's Psalm 118. Does that bother you? <laughs> okay, Because maybe a couple of them got combined. Psalm 9 and 10 got combined into a single psalm in the Septuagint, and so every, every one after that was one-off because of, of the combination of two psalms there. Anyway, those kind of things happen as well. Let's uh, get past that, and let's actually look at some economics in verse 10. Free trade. Differing weights and differing measures. Both of them are abominable to the Lord. Differing weights and differing measures. Literally, it's a stone, a stone, an effa, an effa. It's kind of a, it's an idiomatic way of saying this, almost like line upon line, precept upon precept. You get the repetition of the expressions here, and it's attention getting. So a stone, a stone. And uh, if, if, uh, if you have two different stones for your business dealings, that means you're a, a cheat, you're a thief. And, uh, and that's not uh, what you would have to do because the, the, the purchase price for these products was, uh, was conducted by weight. And if you don't have equal weights, if you have unjust weights, if uh, you know, in, in this pocket you pull out your, your weight and it's supposedly legitimate, and, and you can weigh out the silver, weigh out uh, what it is that you're selling for. And, but then, instead, you pull it out of this pocket, and this weight is a little bit heavier, and, and, or lighter, depending on how you want to cheat. And uh, you have differing weights. So you have a stone or a stone. Which stone are you going to use? An effa or an effa. Which effa are you going to use? And uh, so if you're cheating, you're cheating, and the God of righteousness is not pleased. In fact, he views that as an abomination. The principle is, I think, built into the issue of thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet, and the, all of the issues that are designed for humanity, uh, is that we must have uh, justice, absolute justice and fairness in our weights and in our measures, because any cheating is an abomination. When it comes down to it, the, the blessing that we have to give, to freely give, to give because we choose to give, is the image of God, uh, imitation of God, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God does not cheat when he gives. And God gives when he chooses to give. And the blessings we have, and, and so God chooses to give eternal life, but he only chooses to do so for whosoever believeth in him. And that's the criteria he lays out, that for those that are going to accept the free gift, accept the free gift in God's terms. And those who reject the free gift, they reject the free gift. And God chooses to not forgive those sins and and provide eternal life and not save those who reject the gospel. But it's a free gift as he gives it. I hope we understand this. It comes down to the very nature of who God is and how God operates and why we have the blessing to freely give. And this is what we deal with. This is why the the idea of um, commerce, the idea of trade, the idea of a free exchange is uh, is so marvelous because it's godlike. It's... um, uh, I think the, the economist Walter Williams says uh, the exchange of goods and services, you can, 
you can steal it or you can freely trade for it, right? You know, he had a third option too. You can inherit it, you can steal it, or you can freely trade for it. And, and the free trade, we're not about raping and plundering and, and conquering and, and, and so forth. It's, it's a free exchange. It's a free trade. And so, you know, you go to H-E-B, you give them your, your three bucks, five bucks, I don't know what, how much a gallon of milk is, and H-E-B gives you a gallon of milk, right? How much is a gallon of milk? About three dollars? Something? Whatever. All right. Two percent, by the way. I prefer two percent. Um, so you give H-E-B the three dollars, and they give you the gallon of milk. And both win. Both sides, it's a win-win. It's productive on both ends of the transaction. Because to me, the, the gallon of milk was worth more than the, than the three dollars I, I parted ways with. For H-E-B, the three dollars is worth more than the, the gallon of milk they parted ways with. So from my perspective, I have just increased my value. Yes, I'm $3 lighter in the cash department, but I have a gallon of milk I didn't have before. And so I view that as a plus. I've, or, and if it wasn't a plus, I wouldn't be buying it. See? Anyway, all of this works marvelously until sin comes in and cheating starts happening. And then with an unequal weight, then uh, with uh, in actually inflated currency, with, with inflation because of fiat currency and other economic issues, get, don't get me going, all right? Uh, our money doesn't have the value it used to have, and, and we could talk about gold standard and other things. But um, the fact is, once sin gets into the picture and human beings start monkeying with things, it's called cheating. It's called sin. It's called unequal weights. And the God of righteousness and the God of justice is not pleased. He actually calls it an abomination. It's among the uh, other things that God calls an abomination. And you know, you get these fire and brimstone preachers and they're pounding their pulpit and they're haranguing against the homos and whatever. You know, they're going to talk about homosexuals are an abomination. Yeah, well, so is inflation. So is unjust economic practices. Uh, there's a lot of things in our culture that are abominations that uh, they're just not as salacious as some of the sexual sins that you want to uh, wag your finger at. All right. Well, we see it here. Now you'll notice um, it's going to be fairly common in these verses. The A part and the B part are in agreement with each other. Uh, we don't have the, the typical either-or contrast. We don't have the antithetical parallelism that is most common in Proverbs. We have a stretch here in um, uh, oh, really several of these verses, 10 through 14, um, maybe longer, where, where they combine together in a synthetic way, where they build upon, the B part builds upon the A part. And uh, that's what we see here. Uh, you have to combine the A part and the B part to get the entire idea of the verse. So differing weights, differing measures. Both of them are abominable to the Lord. And we've had similar uh, issues before. You might remember Proverbs 11.1. 1. Proverbs 11.1. 1. There we go. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but, there's the antithetical, but a just weight is his delight. And he loves it. He delights in it. He wants to hug it. The idea of abomination is pushing away. The idea of a delight is an embrace. 
And so uh, he's pushing away. He finds the false balance an abomination. But a just weight pleases him. This is what it comes down to. And if you think about it, when you think about the scales of justice, these metaphors are, are true. These metaphors are based upon the reality. When we are, you know, put on the scales and found wanting, as it were, as Nebuchadnezzar was and so forth. The, uh, the fact is, is that when Jesus Christ paid the price, it was of infinite worth. And so the, the scales are off the charts for as far as the purchase price to redeem you and me. And uh, the infinite purchase price of his son uh, satisfies every uh, requirement. Uh, how about uh, 1611? A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. And this is where uh, we see it here. It's not just how he operates, but he expects this is how we're going to operate as well. There's actually a section in here in verses uh, 10 and following that deal with politics and economics and, uh, and things there. I think it's about 10 through 16 or so. Anyway, we've dealt with that before. How about Deuteronomy? Now, Deuteronomy seems to be or could be thought of as an expansion of Proverbs 2010 um, and based on that the liberals, the German liberals in the 19th century um, developed a lot of theories about the JEDP hypothesis and a bunch of other garbage that views that the, the Deuteronomist author of the Pentateuch um, was, came very, very late and he needed the Psalms and Proverbs in order to incorporate those principles into Deuteronomy. And if you ever read that, just know that it's coming from 19th century German liberalism and we totally reject it today. Okay, Conservative, evangelical, dispensational, uh, Bible-believing churches um, realize that JEDP is insane. Okay? They, it's essentially the, the liberals are telling us that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, that uh, it's really just a combined thing. There was, a, there was an author who loved the, the Jehovah term and so he wrote all the Jehovah stuff and then there was a uh, an author that loved the Elohim term, so he used all the Elohim stuff. And that's why we have both Jehovah verses and Elohim verses in the Pentateuch. And then uh, then there was a priestly line, and they put in all the priestly stuff. And then there was the Deuteronomist, who was the last of them all, and he just kind of um, you know, put the Pentateuch together in its final form. And it's called JEDP Hypothesis. And um, like so many other hypotheses or theories or whatever else, uh, Satan throws it out there and then before long it's considered fact and it's taught as fact, like Darwin is taught as, as fact. And you, you throw these theories out there and, and if you question it later, well aren't you an idiot? All the scholars, all the experts know Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, you know. Well I'm telling you Jesus said he did, so I'm going to go with what Jesus said, Okay. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'm going to trust him. And he said Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm fine with that. By the way, these are the same liberals also that tell you there were three different Isaiahs. And yet Jesus says there was one. So I'm going to go with Jesus. Different aspects there. Deuteronomy 25. While it agrees with Proverbs, it's not dependent upon Proverbs. The, the liberals insist that no, the longer, more developed passage has to be an expansion of the shorter passage. That's insane. 
There is a longer, more developed passage in Deuteronomy that was written 400 years before Solomon wrote the Proverbs. But Proverbs are always short and pithy statements. And, and the idea that Solomon couldn't take a long passage like Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16 and then boil it down to a single proverb is crazy. Easy enough to do. Anyway, Deuteronomy 25, written by Moses 400 years before Solomon. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. See, that's the point. A heavier one, a lighter one. A larger one, a smaller one. And uh, that, that's an abomination. Which is how Solomon wrote it in Proverbs 20.10. He says, a stone, a stone. Uh, an ephah, an ephah. Both of them are abominations to the Lord. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. So you can think of verse 13 as the stones. You can think of verse 14 as the ephahs, the differing measures. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. See, the land is still the land of promise, but they may not enjoy the promise if they conduct their, their nation in a way that's an abomination to the Lord. It doesn't revoke the promise. It doesn't change the promise. It's still an eternal promise. The land still remains to Israel, but this current generation of Israel may be under discipline and may not, may not enjoy the blessings of, of the, uh, the covenant promises that God has given. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. And this is the issue. It comes to conformity to God's standard of justice. And that's the only standard of justice in this universe. This is the thing. And we live in a generation where there's, uh, you know, justice is a buzzword. And it usually has an adjective in front of it. Uh, you know, social justice or, or some other kind of justice, economic justice or, or sexual justice. I mean, they just they throw all these terms out there. And it's, uh, it's, it's far from biblical when it comes to his norms and standards. So we have the issue there. All right. So in our dealings, we want to be fair. There's no cheating. We're not, uh, we're not cutting corners. We're not shaving. We're not like uh, you know, our contractor, and we just learned this week, um, putting in the new camera and, and uh, the uh, electrician. I'm glad he was doing it, not us, because, boy, the sparks were flying. <laughs> sparks flying everywhere. You could smell it and... And uh, anyway, he goes, wow, this is, uh, I didn't expect that. And uh, apparently the way it was wired is uh, the way the code used to be years ago. And, uh, but the new code doesn't let you do it that way anymore. And he just assumed that this building was built with a new code. And, and now I'm wondering, now I'm really wondering. Um, but see, this is the kind of thing. If you have a contractor and you pay him to have a certain quality of building material in there, and he decides to cut corners, and he decides that he's going he's gonna to kind of combine these things and have a single ground for four different uh, leads instead of a separate, I think it's, a, I'm not an electrician, but it seems to me, the way he was describing it, we're supposed to have a, an individual ground for every single line that was going into that box up there. And instead, they put one ground in for four different lines combining it with one ground. I might be wrong and probably explaining it wrong. Anyway, the electrician was surprised when he saw the wiring in that wall. Which leads me to wonder, did our contractor, did he cut corners? Right? Did he save some money 
by not putting in those extra grounds, grounding lines, did he save money and did we get charged for those extra grounding lines that he never put in? And if that's the case, then whatever money he, he skimmed, whatever, you know, skimping on whatever he didn't put in there, um, is, is stealing, it's theft, it's an abomination in God's sight. So I'm left to wonder. All right. By the way, that's not why we lost power Sunday morning. <laughs> okay. Sunday morning was the whole business park. It was the neighbors, it was us, it was all the buildings around here. It was not our installation of the new camera. That, uh, that caused any of that. So um, we have the principles there. Let's look at verse 11. Lifelong reputations. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself and his conduct, if his conduct is pure and right. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and, and right. Of course, Boys and girls, you can adapt this for a girl. You can say lads and lasses if his or her conduct is pure and right. But a young person, a young person can build a reputation. And in the Word of God, they will build a reputation. It's curious. Lifelong reputations can and should be made in a childhood that is lived according to the Word of God. And what a privilege it is and what a joy it is to train up the next generation in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and to ground them in the, in the Scriptures and to, uh, to establish the lifelong habits and patterns and principles that they will carry into their adult life. Lifelong reputations can and should be made in a childhood that is lived according to the Word of God. Now the B portion of this is an expansion of the A portion and the if this is part of the puzzle, and this is a part where the manuscripts, eh, okay, let's see, in um, how are we going to translate this? I, I think the, the NASB has a, a, an excellent rendering here, so I'm not really disputing it, if his conduct is pure and right. But really the only quibble that I might have with it is that the opposite is also true. So that if his conduct is nasty and wrong, if his conduct is wicked and abominable, then when I go back to the A part of this verse, is the lad also distinguishing himself that way? <laughs> yes, I think he is. And, um, you know, a juvenile delinquent can grow up to become an adult delinquent, okay? I mean, there's, a, there's a, an issue there too. So it's not only on the positive side of things. I think that there can be a distinction. And so when it says distinguishes himself, this might be uh, the difference between um, you know, fame and notoriety. <laughs> a young man that is notorious versus a young man that's distinguished. And, uh, and what it is that they grow into. I think both sides are true. And the pattern is there that we want to start them on the right foot. We want to start them in the right pattern with the Word of God. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. That's the general rule of how these things work. And, uh, and a believer that's grounded at the youngest of ages has such a tremendous advantage over the, the unbeliever that doesn't get saved until he's already in his 20s, 30s, or 40s or what have you because those the, the, the formative years were all formative in, in cosmic wisdom instead of the Word of God. 
Anyway, we see it here, and we're going to see it elsewhere. We have several good examples in the Scriptures of this, and of course examples in daily life as well that we can illustrate with our own family members and our own church members and different things. Uh, but it's, it's pretty obvious. And um, it should also be an encouragement to us also, encouragement to any young person. Oh, that's going to be too small, isn't it? That's a good reason to not drop the point down so low. All right, well, I'll let you write the verses down and then we'll, uh, and then we'll get the Bible window up there. Proverbs 22.15 thing is this is not going to happen on accident. This is not going to happen naturally. It's not going to happen intuitively um, because that child is an unbeliever in Adam and so that child needs to be saved and then that child needs to be renewed in their mind. They need to have their thinking renewed. They need to be disciplined and transformed. And uh, the Word of God will do that, but parental discipline is designed to facilitate that. And so we take Proverbs 20.11 and we relate it to Proverbs 22.15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And we combine these and we see that this is necessary. That, uh, that uh, don't just think that automatically every, every baby that's birthed is... Uh, is going to distinguish himself by righteous deeds with conduct that's pure and right. Conduct is not automatically pure and right because that child is a sinner in Adam. And so he needs to be saved and he needs to be disciplined. He needs to have the foolishness um, removed. And that takes uh, a rod, okay? And uh, in the process there, spanking is biblical and that rod is designed to adjust the thinking. And uh, the child learns very quickly that he doesn't want to experience that, uh, that, that pain. The, the, the hindquarters that were designed by God marvelously with all those tender nerve endings to, uh, to communicate, and it doesn't, no permanent harm, but those, uh, those nerve endings on the, uh, on the backside are specifically there to modify behavior. And uh, this is what the Scripture deals with. Samuel is a marvelous illustration of this. Whoops. Well, I am just mistyping everything today. 1 Samuel 2.26. Mm. Sometimes those typos will get you. All right. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor. And this is one I want to make larger. So when I go full screen. All right. The boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both of the Lord and men. Now remember he had been promised to serve the Lord and so after he was weaned his mother Hannah had given him to, to the temple service. And so he is functioning in the temple. We have Eli as the high priest there, and Eli's got a couple of sons, and they're terrible. They're absolutely terrible. So don't just think, well, hey, Eli's the high priest, his sons must be marvelous, right? It's like, oh, well, goodness, the, the pastor's kids must be the best kids in the church. They must be the, don't think that, okay? That's idolatry. And PKs get, uh, you know, they get enough of that in their lifetime, they don't need any extra porn upon them. 
in these unreasonable expectations. And so here's the boy Samuel growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And I think this is a tremendous illustration for our our verse here in Proverbs 20 and verse 11. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. And so he's got a good reputation with God and with men. And then uh, what happens here with his, uh, his sons and we see doesn't take long and you can see the, the wreck that these boys are and the judgment that's coming upon the, the house of Samuel. Anyway, what else do we have? We have verse 26 and then in chapter 3 it's verses 19 through 21. See, here's where uh, Samuel starts to get this vision and he's just a boy. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and a word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Kind of shows you the spiritual circumstances of the high priest, spiritual circumstances of the Jewish people. It happened at the time Eli was lying down in his place. His eyesight had begun to grow dim. He couldn't see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And how'd you like that to be your bedroom? Wouldn't that be cool? Growing up and you're in the temple. The Lord called uh, Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Now quit bugging me. Go back to bed. (laughs) But it's the Lord. And uh, he's speaking through the boy. He's in prophetic office as a boy. This is what I try to communicate to our young people around here. You know, your priestly function doesn't have to wait. You're a, you're, a, you're a believer, you're a believer priest right here, right now. And all the things you're waiting for, you can't drive till you're 16, you can't vote till you're 18, you can't, you know, all these things you're waiting to do as an adult. Your, your priesthood, you don't have to wait. You can be praying right now. You could be involved in the priesthood right now. So the Lord called again a second time, Samuel. But Samuel arose, went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call my son, lie down again. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. Now I don't think this is a salvation knowing of the Lord, but I think this is an intimate knowing of the Lord and uh, a call to prophetic office. He not yet had a call. He didn't know that he was going to spend the rest of his life as a prophet of Yahweh. So the Lord called Samuel again the third time and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And uh, thank goodness you want to have the older man give you some wisdom when you're thinking about being a pastor or you're wondering about ministry in different capacities. So Eli says to Samuel, go lie down it shall be if he calls you the fourth time that you shall say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And you know, the young man goes to the old man and says, how do I know what my gift is? How do I know if I'm supposed to be a pastor? What, you know, uh, what's the process here? And get some wisdom from that older generation. So the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. And I think he actually missed a word. Yeah, he was supposed to say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And all he says is, speak for your servant is listening. Close enough. Okay, he's following what the old man told him and uh, he gets his call. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. Because his whole house, Eli and both of his boys, they're a wreck. For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever by the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. See, if you tolerate it, then you're accountable. You're fostering it. You're allowing it. You're accountable. (laughs) And this is uh, curious to me. In fact, this principle, if you are letting it happen and it's happening under your authority then you're just as guilty as the ones perpetrating it. You're just as guilty as the ones doing it. And uh, this is part of the political fight we're seeing in the news right now. And the uh, folks in Minneapolis wanted uh, federal dollars to help rebuild damage that was done. And the president said, you let it happen. You're part of it. Your politics liked what those thugs were out there doing. So it's a curious thing to me watching this and seeing these principles unfold. Because Eli didn't stop his boys from what they were doing. God says it's just as if you're doing it. You're the accountable party. Therefore I've sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. He's <laughs> like, ooh, I better go back to bed. <laughs> you wonder, he didn't get much sleep this night anyway. But can you imagine for your very first sermon ever, you got to go tell the high priest that his household is doomed? And you're just a boy preaching this? And so he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And Eli called to Samuel. But Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And his first, at least there, his first message was listened to and appreciated. So then we have the statement here at the end of the chapter. And these are the verses I think I was highlighting. Yes, verses 19 through 21. Thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. Now, it was rare in those days, and uh, the, the words were few. And, you know, they hadn't seen, I mean, how long had it been? I mean, Moses was long gone, and they had a string of judges. You know, when did they, when, when were they going to have another prophet? It's been a while since they'd had a prophet. And here's Samuel. And when you understand the whole arc of the Old Testament history, sometimes we say that uh, Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Because he really was a prophet, not exactly like Moses, but the closest thing they had to Moses ever since Moses. And he started off the long chain of prophets that that runs from Samuel to Malachi in the history of the Old Testament. And so all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This, of course, is the temporary house. David wasn't king yet. Solomon wasn't king yet. The full temple hadn't been built yet. But this was the, the house that the tabernacle had become. All right, so we have the verses there. Lifelong reputations can and should be made in a childhood that is lived according to the Word of God. And this is, uh, this is both a double-edged sword, but it is a blessing. Um, it does put pressure on a kid in a good way. 
<laughs> you know. And uh, Radley will tell you, others, when, when he was in high school, there were a lot of uh, expectations. And uh, same thing when I was in high school, sadly, in middle school, okay, and there's expectations. And uh, my childhood pastor told my mother when I was 10 years old, said, you know, I think he could be a pastor someday. But then he said, don't you dare tell him. And I didn't learn this for 20 years. I didn't learn this until after I'd been ordained and in the ministry. And, and it was, I was probably 30 by the time uh, my mother said, you know what, uh, you know, PJ told me back when you were 10, he said he thought you might be a pastor someday. I'm like, wow, I never knew that. Well, that's because he said, don't tell you. <laughs> don't, uh, don't put pressure on him like that. Don't give him a big fat head. And uh, he's got a fat enough head as it is. Different things there. So, By the way, we're going to start getting some neat stories. Oh, uh, sad stories, I don't know. But um, my, my childhood pastor's son is moving to Austin along with his family and uh, a married daughter and a son-in-law and, and, and another daughter and it's, it's, I'm looking forward to it. As soon as they can get here I'll be introducing them to everybody and uh, it's going to be a neat, a neat uh, thing. All right. <laughs> so yeah, there could be many stories that could be told in, uh, in those things. Let's look at another example. Samuel's a marvelous example and, and neat because he grew up in the same house as Hophni and Phinehas. And, wh- and why were Hophni and Phinehas wicked and why was Samuel righteous? Samuel was humble and he learned the Word of God. Hophni and fin- Phinehas were wicked and uh, used their authority as sons of the high priest to conduct wicked things uh, with um, women and everything else. Of course, Jesus is a good example here too. Luke 2, 46 through 52. He's 12 years old. They've come to the temple to worship. And, uh, and then they leave. They just assume he's somewhere with the extended family in the caravan. And uh, they get a day out and they can't find him anywhere. So then they have to come back. And now he's three days absent from them. So when after three days Joseph and Mary find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Can you imagine? You're like a 12-year-old at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he's sitting there with a bunch of PhD types and they're talking about whatever. And he's, uh, he's answering, he's, not only is he discussing it with them, but he's got further questions for them that must have boggled their mind. Like, wow, I never thought of that. Okay? And he's throwing questions their direction. And you think, who's this 12-year-old in this graduate school? And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, that's the parents, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, now Joseph never speaks a word in this chapter and we don't know why. We never see him again either after this chapter. So we, we assume that he passes away shortly, that he's not much longer on this earth. And maybe, who knows? If he's in poor health, he can't speak, we have no idea. But Mary does all the talking here. Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? I had to be about my father's business. And this key about being about the father's business, this is what we're getting into in Colossians, what we're getting into when we see the father's business and making us alive and in nailing the 
the decrees against us to the cross and in uh, the, the triumph that he has in disarming the rulers and the authorities. It's all about the Father's business and we need to be about our Father's business. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. So he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Now could he not have stayed there in the temple and said, sorry, I'm I'm starting my ministry now, have a nice life, I'll stop by and visit every now and then. You know, I imagine, I mean Samuel did, Samuel was probably younger than 12. But, and Jesus could have, but it wasn't the will of God for him to do so, so he didn't. And um, I think that he had to have another 18 years of, of anonymity, another more time to grow up. He had to experience more of what we experience, including the death of a parent, including the family responsibilities. He's the firstborn son. And uh, James and Jude and the younger boys and the sisters, what were they going to do after Joseph dies? Who's going to put food on the table? That's a, that's a big family to feed. And so Jesus becomes a carpenter and he has these responsibilities and these duties. Anyway, it's curious to me. So when he says, why? And when he says, did you not know? He didn't know. That's the staggering thing. He said, did you not know? And, and he didn't know that Joseph and Mary didn't know. And, and that's, that's important because Jesus was mistaken about what he assumed Mary and Joseph knew. He didn't sin. He was just incorrect in an assumption that they knew what he was assuming. And he was assuming that he, this was the beginning of his ministry. And when he realized that they weren't supportive of that, that they were unaware of that, he had to back off and say, wait a minute. And so he stays in subjection to his parents. This is a marvelous text. And we taught this in the life of Christ. If you want to go find it on the website, it's sitting there. And uh, you'll be able to, to get the fuller description of it there. Not only do we have Jesus as the example, we have uh, Timothy as a marvelous example. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. There's uh, difficult times that are coming up, and in fact, here we have it, or difficult times coming up. And uh, this is not supposed to be ringing right now. That's crazy. I had turned that off. You didn't hear it, though, did you? Nobody heard it. All right. I'm still getting used to these hearing aids, and when the phone rings, I can hear it in my ears, and and then when I answer it and I start talking, you can't hear that either. It just seems like I'm talking to the air, or talking to myself. Sharon and the kids think I'm crazy. All right, Timothy. So we had the example of Samuel. We have the example, I think we have, there's more examples, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We have all of these young people in the scriptures. And, and they're grounded in truth at a young age. Here's uh, Timothy. And living in difficult times, the things that he was able to see here, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but we do live in the last days, difficult times will come. And uh, and here, here we are. 
and then he talks about uh, false teachers. But he says, you, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That was Timothy's hometown, the region there of, of Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. That's where Timothy grew up. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. When, when Paul was in Lystra and Derby, they stoned him. They thought he was dead. I think he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. And then God restored him to physical life. He got up the next morning, went back in, started preaching some more. You think that has an impact on a young boy watching this? Now that was on the first missionary journey with Barnabas. On the second missionary journey, Timothy's going to go with him. Timothy joins the team on the second missionary journey. But he saw what happened on the first missionary journey. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Hello, 6 o'clock news. <laughs> okay? I mean, how do you believe anything anymore when they say one thing one day and something else the next? You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. He's not talking about himself, he's talking about the Lord. God's the one that teaches the Scriptures. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Expose our children to the Scriptures at the youngest of ages. So they learn the stories, they learn the Bible, they learn the characters, they learn the principles. And then when they get saved, they can learn the doctrine and they can learn, they can be transformed because they've already been exposed to these things. We have the pattern there. And this is interesting to me in Acts 16 on the second missionary journey when Paul and Silvanus they had split off from Barnabas at the end of chapter 15. Barnabas took Mark, they went off to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And as he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. A disciple was there named Timothy. Now we don't know how old he is, but if this is 50 AD, 12 years later when Paul writes 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, he says, let no one despise thy youth. In 1 Timothy, Timothy is pastoring the believers in Ephesus and he tells Timothy, teach the word of God, set the example, let them watch you grow up. And he says, let no one despise thy youth. So how old was he in 62 AD when Paul says, let no one despise thy youth? take 12 years off. How old is he in 50 AD when Paul wants this man to go with him? Paul wants this masculine pronoun to go with him. This boy, this youth, this it's just a masculine pronoun. It's not really the word for adult man. But a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who are in Lystra and Iconium. So not only does your church think you're a godly believer, but the believers over in the next town, they think you're a godly believer. 
And they can't wait for you to grow up and become a pastor because they think they might bring you to their town. (laughs) Okay? And so what an example of a lad who by his deeds distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. From his childhood, this was the reputation Timothy had, both in Lystra uh, and uh, Iconium and Derby. All three of these locations. All in the Galatian region. So when uh, the, the letter to the Galatians gets written, it gets written to this crowd, to these localities, to Timothy's people. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And it's a good thing he did. It's a good thing he did because uh, in all the scrapes, Paul and Silvanus get thrown into prison in Philippi. Well, Timothy's still free. They get run out of Thessalonica. Well, Timothy's still free. Send him in there. And uh, Timothy gets to teach some Bible classes in places that Paul and Silvanus couldn't go anymore. And it's a really remarkable thing. In fact, probably at the age of 10 or 11, in 51 or 52, when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and he writes 2 Thessalonians, Timothy is listed as a co-author. A co-author of Scripture at the age of 12 is what I'm guessing. Okay? It's a curious thing. Well, this is uh, what we're dealing with here. All right, well, we got through verse 10 and 11 today. We'll come back next week for verses 12 and 13. Yeah, we've got some more to go. We'll, we'll do verses 12 and 13 next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for thy truth. Open our eyes, Father. Bless our studies. And uh, particularly with the young people here at Austin Bible Church, might we encourage them to engage in their priesthood, to grow uh, and to, uh, to function, uh, Father, in, in, uh, in all these ways. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.